series of sermons on the basic doctrines of grace. These five principles form the substance of the belief that often uh, sets us apart from many other religious orders. It is not my goal to always emphasize the differences that exist between us and other people, and yet I think it is very important that we understand what the Bible teaches and why it is that we have taken a strong stand on the doctrines of grace, the reason, of course, being that the Bible itself is a book which teaches that salvation is by the grace of God. And we spoke two Sundays ago on the subject of depravity, and that is the lesson regarding man's sin. Man is utterly, completely depraved and sinful. He is not as sinful as he can be all the time, but he is sinful and has the propensity or predisposition toward the very worst of sins. And therefore it takes the rescue of God to pull him out of that fallen condition. There's nothing that man can do to attract himself to God. This is the doctrine of depravity. The Bible is full of it. I told you then that I had studied 200 verses that week alone that taught the doctrine of depravity, that taught that man is a sinner and that man cannot approach unto God in and of his own merit. Last Sunday, I spoke to you on the subject of unconditional election. That is the doctrine that God chose his people, chose his family by his own grace, according to his own purpose and pleasure. This is a doctrine that is oftentimes debated. Some become outrightly violent when they discover that the Bible teaches that man was elected by God, not that that man elected God, but that God elected man. That's sometimes frustrating to the individual who considers himself to be in charge of everything going on, thinks that he is in control. To learn that he is not in control and that God is is sometimes upsetting, but to the child of God who has been taught in these matters, he rejoices and rests in the fact that his salvation is completely in the hands of a sovereign God who always does the right thing. Unconditional election. Today we come to perhaps the most controversial of the topics that we need to talk about. And that's why I ask you to pray especially today because this is one that, um, that's, uh, it's deep doctrine. That's what it is. This sermon will be different than a lot of sermons you hear me preach. Um, when we get into the doctrine of redemption, and that's what we're on today, we are talking about the moment in history that is the absolute apex all events in time, the moment in which our Savior gave himself as a sacrifice upon Calvary's cross to redeem all of the elect. Now, that moment is far greater, in my estimation, than the day that man took one small step upon the moon, which was one giant step for mankind. Someone said when that event occurred, This is the greatest day in human history. What a tragedy to think that something so small as man taking a step on God's moon was greater than the day that God himself came to earth and gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the elect. It truly is the greatest event in human history. And so therefore I come to this subject clumsily and awkwardly and fearfully because I know that in and of myself I cannot do justice when I begin to talk about such a majestic theme as the perfect sacrifice of Christ. So you pray. 
May the Holy Spirit fill in all the cracks, as I often say. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the heart of it. We learn that it is connected to the truths of the Old Testament, that the New Testament is actually the revelation of all those things contained in the Old. The primary thrust of the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. That is, that once these bodies have been planted in the heart of the earth, they rest there, they wait there. Yes, they may even decompose there, but they wait there nonetheless, known by God, who will ultimately speak, and that sleeping dust shall be recreated in the image of Christ to ever praise Him in heaven. That's the doctrine that is primarily taught in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But I'd like for us to look at one little phrase that Paul gives us in this chapter, and that would be in the 22nd verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In the first place, we learn that all in Adam die. We talked about that two weeks ago. I really don't need to spend a lot of time on that. Every time you pass a cemetery, it's evidence that all in Adam die. Everybody represented by Adam either has died or will die. But I think Paul has more under consideration than just physical death. Physical death is a parable. It just tells us about something of even deeper and greater reality. And that is the fact that man dies naturally is evidence of the fact that man by nature is dead spiritually. He is not able to approach unto God. He is out of fellowship with God. He has died to fellowship with God. Why? Because his parent, Adam, did the wrong thing in the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm not going to get into why it is that God has set things up to where you and I were represented by Adam. I'd love to talk to you about that privately, though. I, I, I really would. So if you've got a question about that, please don't hesitate to come to me with it. But Adam, just take it from me now as, a, as an assertion, Adam is our representative. And as our representative, he plunged us all into a state of death. And God himself said, Adam, when you eat of the forbidden fruit, what's going to happen? You shall surely die. That day, God said that, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. What does this mean? Adam didn't drop dead of a heart attack that day. Adam continued to live. He was, he was nearly a thousand years old when he died. How did he die that day? He died to fellowship and relationship with God. Now that being the case, he passed that along to every one of his descendants, including this room full of people today. Okay, As in Adam, all die. All represented by Adam die. Now, the rest of the verse says, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. Beautiful thought right there. As in Adam, our first representative, everybody dies, sin, disease, corruption, distress came into the world. Even so, by our second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, our second representative, all shall be made alive. Now, if you're following this very closely, you automatically, you have already thought of a problem that we've got. <laughs> if we are saying that everybody in Adam is non-spiritual and unsaved, then we come along and say, but all will be made alive. We assume that means spiritually alive. We assume it means to be saved. 
Why does he use the word all? All in Adam die, that's pretty obvious. That means everybody. All in Christ are made alive. Does every person on your street give evidence that they're alive in Christ? Very doubtful, huh? Probably not. Does everybody in the Roanoke Valley give evidence that they're alive in Christ? Probably not. Have you seen some people die that when they died, they showed no evidence that they were alive in Christ? Well, you probably have. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that there are some people who will never be made alive in Christ, right? And there's a place prepared for them. That place is called the lake of fire. They shall be separated from the elect of God, and they shall burn forever there in a place of torment, misery, and woe. That's where the wicked go. Now, if all in Adam die, and all in Christ are made alive... Why is it that some of these people that he says are alive are burning in hell? Why would such a thing happen? Well, the answer is this. Paul is speaking of a representative here. He says everybody represented by Adam died. Everybody represented by Christ was made alive or will be made alive. You see that? Now, that lets us know that if somebody dies outside of Christ, what? They could not have been represented by Christ, right? You see, this is a doctrine that people dislike very, very quickly. <laughs> I would suggest when you talk to somebody for the first time about grace, this not be the very first thing you bring up. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said one time that uh, milk is for the individual who's a, a babe in Christ. And strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Now, I don't know at what position you find yourself today, whether you're a baby or whether you're at full age, but I will tell you that this is a doctrine which is for those who are aged <laughs> in the faith. It's not the kind of thing you can grab a hold of immediately as a general rule. So don't be upset or discouraged today if some of you don't feel like you're quite there. But if you've been brought up a primitive Baptist and been around as I have all your life, this doctrine, from the time you cut your teeth, you have known that Jesus Christ came in the world to die for the elect, that he represented those that would ultimately live in heaven, and he represented them perfectly. He died for the elect and the elect only. You know that if you have been around this doctrine very long. But I'm not so much interested today in tradition and what we've always been taught. I want to know what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? In Adam all died. That is, everybody represented by Adam died. In Christ all are made alive. Everybody represented by Christ made alive. Okay. Two terms that I need to acquaint you with right now that will help to clarify these truths, I believe. Uh, one is the term particular redemption. When we speak of redemption, we are talking about buying back by paying a price. When Jesus Christ came in the world, his purpose was to buy back the people that had been sold under sin. His elect, chosen by God before the world began, needed to be repurchased. They had belonged to God in covenant agreement before the world began. They had believed a lie, fallen into sin. They needed to be purchased, right? Had to be bought back. And so Jesus Christ came, and what did he use as currency? What was used to pay the price? Some would say, well, I suppose he put up an awful lot of money. You know, he owns all the gold of Ophir. <laughs> no, he didn't put up any money. 
You say, I bet, he put, I bet he mortgaged a lot of the mansions in heaven. No, he didn't mortgage the mansions in heaven. You say, I'll bet that he, uh, I'll bet he brought some of the wonderful relics of heaven down to earth and offered those up as a burnt sacrifice unto God. I'll bet you he brought an angel down and that angel was sacrificed in the stead of the elect of God. No, my dear friends, God would take no second best. He would take only the best. And that which was offered to pay the price was the very blood of the Son of God, the best that heaven had to offer. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, For as much as you know that we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, we were not bought back with corruptible things like silver and gold. Now and then you hear somebody say, Well, if you people will just give so much, then so many souls can be saved. There's pretty good evidence right there that Peter didn't believe that. He didn't believe that the salvation of souls was dependent upon how much somebody gave in money. He says we're not redeemed by monetary things, corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself a lamb without spot or blemish. That's how you were bought back. Now, the question that claims our attention right now is with regard to the term particular redemption. We're bought back by the blood of Christ. When we say particular, what does that mean? How many of you have read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer? If you haven't, you have missed it. <laughs> it's a great book. Tom Sawyer. You better read it while you have a chance. Someday it will be banned. <laughs> so Tom Sawyer. Do you remember the day that Tom Sawyer was out whitewashing the fence? Most everybody's heard that story. One of his friends came by and uh, Tom hatched up a scheme. He didn't want to whitewash that fence. He'd a whole lot rather be doing something a lot more fun than that. And so his friend came up and said, Oh, Tom, you've got to wash the fence today. Ah! And he made all manner of fun of Tom. And Tom said, Oh, it takes, a, you know, it takes a trained eye to do this work. Finally, he turned to the little friend and he, he said, Aunt Polly, she's awful particular about this. Particular. Particular. Boy, that friend wanted that paintbrush so bad he couldn't stand it. <laughs> you recall the story. Tom Sawyer wound up sitting under a shade tree all day long and wound up with a bunch of treasures beside while one boy after another whitewashed the fence all day. <laughs> what was it? Tom said she's awful particular. That means she's not going to accept just anything and everything. Right? Now, when we get ready to talk about redemption and we say that redemption is particular, we are talking about a God who says, I don't just accept anything and everything. I did not send my son into the world to spill his blood at large. I sent my son into the world to shed his blood specifically for a particular people. That's the term, particular redemption. Okay. Now there's another term that describes an opposing view, which I will briefly mention to you. And then I would like to attempt to reconcile these two positions as much as reconciliation is possible. General atonement or general redemption is the second view. I have just given you what I believe to be the scriptural view. That is that Christ died for the elect. I intend to get into the scriptures in a moment and show you 
many scriptures which, which would lead us to believe this. The second view is one called general redemption. And general redemption means that Jesus Christ came in the world and died for everybody, but that his death did not save them. His death made them savable, and when they by faith appropriate that death to themselves, then they will be redeemed. You see the difference? General redemption is the idea that everybody is savable. Particular redemption is that everybody intended to be saved is saved. See the difference? Okay. Now let's think about how to get these two together. Why, how in the world could theologians, people that are a lot smarter and, what, and better read in the scriptures than I, could argue about such things as this? How could both of these views fall out of the Bible and create such divisiveness among Christians? How could that happen? Well, there are verses that seem to indicate that Jesus Christ died for everybody. We'll talk about some of those. There are other verses that seem to talk about Jesus Christ dying only for a specific and particular people. So immediately we see one reason why there are various views on this. But when you come down to the final analysis, let me suggest this and then move on. When you come down to the final analysis, if you believe particular redemption, you believe that all believers, those given to believe by the grace of God, will be saved, right? If you believe in general atonement, you still believe in the final analysis, that all believers are going to be saved. <laughs> okay? You see what I'm saying? When you come down to the very bottom line, the lowest common denominator, whether you believe in particular redemption or general redemption, we all believe that believers will be saved. Okay? Now, to me, this is a very consoling thing because... I can look at this congregation of people and I honestly don't know who is elect and who isn't. I don't know for sure whether you're elect or not. I haven't looked at the Lamb's Book of Life, so I can't say for certain that I know that you're elect. Okay. But I today, as a preacher of the gospel, can call upon every one of you to obey the principles of the Word of God. I can call upon you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Paul did with the jailer in Macedonia. Do you remember that? I can call upon you to believe. I can call upon you to accept these principles, to hold them dear in your life. I can invite you to follow Jesus Christ. Why can I do that? Because I know that if you do that, that's evidence you are elect. And I know if you will not, you refuse, you rebel, and you're utterly stubborn about that, that's evidence that you're not. My position is the same. I'm not going to change the atonement of Christ. I'm not going to change the election of God. All of those things are settled, already done, already certain and sure. But today I have the blessed privilege to say to all who will listen, come to Christ. Why? Because if you can come, you are one of the particular ones redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I know that. Your coming forward isn't going to make a difference as to whether you're redeemed or not. It just gives evidence of the fact that you are. Okay? In the final analysis, we believe believers will be in heaven. Okay. Now let's look at what the scriptures have to say on this fantastic doctrine. We've looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As I did last Sunday, I'd like to just read to you a list to avoid a lot of turning in the pages of your Bible, and I'd like to quickly go through these without much comment. And what I'd like for you to particularly notice right now is the special nature of the death of Christ. Not simply the um, 
characteristics of it itself, but the effect of it and to whom it is applied. I want you to think about people while I'm reading these verses. To whom is he speaking? To whom is he speaking? To whom, for whom did Christ die? That's what I'd like you to think about as we read these verses. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, he missed a wonderful opportunity to say, give his life a ransom for all, if he intended to say, I want to save everybody. He said, I gave my life a ransom for many. Okay, let's move on. Matthew 26, 28, we have the same type situation. This is my blood of the New Testament, Jesus says, which is shed for whom? For many. For many. For the remission of sins. Okay, now we get more specific in John 6, 37 through 39. He says, all that the Father giveth me, election, right? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, regeneration. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Perseverance or preservation. Okay. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now Jesus said, here's what I came down from heaven to do. That of all the elect, all which the Father has given to me, I would lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Do you see that? He doesn't say, I'm coming to attempt to save all the human race, but only a portion of them will follow. He comes to say, I came to save. I didn't come to make them savable. I didn't come to make them rescuable. I came to save them. I came to rescue them. All that the Father giveth me then, he says, I will raise up again at the last day. How? Because his blood paid the price for their sins. John chapter 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now, the Bible also speaks of another class of folk, doesn't it? The goats. Remember that? Matthew 25, the great separation at the end of time. What's going to happen? The sheep on one side, the goats on the other. To the sheep he'll say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the goats he'll say, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. This is a separation I firmly believe to take place at the end of time. But notice that Jesus Christ says the good shepherd gives his life for whom? Not the goats. For the sheep. He giveth his life for the sheep. John 10, 15, same thing. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There it is again, the sheep. John 17, 2 says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh. Jesus is speaking to God. God, He says to God, You have given me power over all flesh, that I should give eternal life to whom? To as many as thou hast given me. There's the elect again. Jesus Christ says, I am come to buy these people, the elect, the people that Jesus Christ had been given by the Father in the covenant before the world began. Okay? John, rather, Romans chapter 5, verse 19 Similar verse to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, where we started this morning. Romans 5, 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Jesus Christ will be a representative of many, as Adam was a representative of many. Galatians chapter 4, the fourth verse says, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman made under the law, 
to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Okay? Individuals who have been struggling under the law, people who had been in bondage through the law, he says, shall be blessed to be adopted sons. All the adopted sons are able to participate in the blessings of being a member of the family. Why? Because God sent his son to redeem people from under the law. Hebrews 9.26, Now once at the end of the world hath he put a, appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Um, let me get 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll move on. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 through 21 says this, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, remember speaking about that a few minutes ago, such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. This is not the price of redemption, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who's he writing to? Peter began his very epistle in this very chapter. He began writing to the people. He identifies his audience by saying, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. He says, I have come into the world to save the elect. I have come, I was ordained even before the world began, to save the elect from their sins. In case you have a problem with the doctrine of election, you're really going to have a problem with the doctrine of particular redemption, right? <laughs> But when you understand depravity and realize man can't do anything to approach into God by himself, election begins to make sense. And when election begins to make sense, particular redemption begins to make sense. The idea that Jesus died for the elect. Let me just ask you, logically speaking, what sense would it make for God to go to all the trouble, if you'll allow me to speak as a man, to elect people before the world began, to choose them, to particularly select them, and then send his son into the world to die for everybody. What sense would that make? No, if God is an electing God and a God of order, leaving nothing to haphazard and chance, God is one who would send his son to die for the exact people he intends to have in heaven, right? Now let's look today at the nature of redemption, the nature of the atonement. I believe that the Bible is pretty clear on this doctrine. But I want us to realize today that if we truly believe the, what the, how the Bible defines atonement and how the Bible defines redemption, we will have to conclude that everybody Christ died for will be saved. We'll have to conclude that. If you truly believe that the blood of Jesus Christ is efficient, if you believe that the blood of Jesus Christ truly takes away sin, you have to believe that everybody Christ died for will be in heaven. Okay? Let's think about the nature of the atonement for a minute. There are two principles involved in atonement or redemption. Atonement is, is, to, is, is what it takes to reconcile God to man, okay? The sacrifice of Christ. In that sacrifice, in that atonement, there are two things involved. One is substitution. The other is uh, imputation. Two big words. Let's talk about them. Substitution is pretty simple. You know what a substitute is, don't you? I used to do a little bit of substitute teaching when I was, was in, uh, my, uh, in a secular profession, obviously. 
And when you were a substitute, you were the fellow that showed up when the regular teacher didn't. And there were times that I walked in there and, and the teacher would have said to the principal, tell the substitute teacher there, there are some plans. And the, in the, the, the back of the file at the back of the bottom left-hand drawer of the desk. <laughs> and I'd get there and I'd look through every desk drawer and every file cabinet and I found absolutely nothing. And I looked at these kids and thought, what are we going to do today? I'm the one standing in the place of the teacher that's supposed to be here, but I don't know what I'm doing. And obviously you don't either. A substitute is one who stands in the place of another. In Hollywood, this is a common thing. I understand that when you have a star whose life you really don't want to put in jeopardy and there's a stunt in the movie that he must perform, you get somebody that looks kind of like him and set the camera angles just right and shade the lens just right so that people all over the world think that it's that big star jumping the Grand Canyon when it really isn't. <laughs> One who stands in place of another. Okay, when we're talking about the atonement of our God, the reconciliation of God and his people, we are talking today about substitution without any of the problems that we encounter when we substitute one thing for another. We are talking about one who stood in the place of someone else. Sometimes we describe it this way, Jesus Christ died in our room instead. That is, he was in our place. That's where he was when he died. Did you know that all of us should have faced the penalty that he bore on Calvary? That's what we should have gotten. At the least, we should have gotten that. Therefore, I am sometimes skeptical when people come to me and tell me about how hard everything is, how rotten everything is, how miserable their life is. I'm a little bit skeptical. Listen, if you're a child of God, anything you get short of hell itself is a blessing of God. It is the mercy of God. What we should have gotten, what we should have received was the eternal wrath of God poured out upon us for the sins we've committed and for the sins of all humanity, right back to our parent Adam, all humanity should have suffered. What happened at the cross? Jesus Christ came and stood in our place. And there he suffered the wrath of God. He suffered the wrath of man. But you know, you and I can suffer that. But what we cannot suffer and live and survive in these bodies would be the wrath of God unleashed, completely undamned so that that full weight of wrath came forth on the Son of God. That's what happened in three hours of darkness upon Calvary. When that particular day came, you could have been standing there, and the Bible tells us that the darkness was so great upon the earth that, that man could feel the darkness. And when you think about darkness that great, you wonder why would God turn the light out that day? God turned the light out that day because he would not allow man to look upon this transaction which would take place between God and God, if you will. What a day that was. Is this an assertion on my part? I think not. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's notice the principle of substitution. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The 21st verse tells us, you may know that this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, that is God, hath made him, that is Christ. God hath made Christ to be sin for us, for us, for us. Substitution right there. You see that? He's standing in our place. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He's our substitute. He stands in our place, taking our place.
taking our part of the penalty, taking our part of the wrath of God and bearing it upon Calvary so that you'll never have to bear it yourself. I know that we don't fully understand that doctrine. I know that I don't. Because you wouldn't be able to contain the joy in this room if we could really get even a glimpse of that. We would be so overjoyed at the thought of being rescued from an eternal punishment, eternal damnation, taken away from God himself, and then brought out of that position to praise God for all eternity, to be called the friend of God and the lover of God, the, 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 the one who could walk with God and be his servant. To think that we could actually make that kind of a change, God could make that in us, is so remarkable. People have been talking about it for 2,000 years. And I am persuaded shall be until Christ returns. He hath made him to be sin for us. He was the substitute. He stood in our place. In Genesis 22, Abraham offered a sacrifice to God, originally intended to be his son. So Abraham thought, what happened? God stayed the hand of Abraham, said, don't kill your son. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Offer the ram instead. That ram became a substitute. In Isaac's place, the ram died. I would tell you, my friends, that you and I were strapped upon the altar before God. His wrath was kindled against us. There was nothing to hold us out of the flaming cauldrons of hell. But God, by His mercy, arrested the hand of, of justice and vengeance and instead killed His own Son that we might go free. We as Isaac have gotten up off the altar to walk back down the mountain with our Father and to rejoice with Him for all eternity because we had a substitute, Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, this substitution is more than just a substitution. The nature of the atonement involves Jesus Christ standing in our place, but it secondly involves a transfer of accounts. Okay? And that, too, is contained in 1 2 Corinthians 5.21. This transfer of accounts is called imputation. When we are speaking of imputation, we are talking about something that has been put into you. Okay? Something that's been put into you. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. What's that tell us? That tells us that all of our sins were imputed to Christ. That is, everything we've ever done wrong, whether it be lying, cheating, stealing, whether it be adultery or murder, all of these horrible things that we hear about and read about in the newspapers, Jesus Christ took the sins of all of his elect family and they were imputed to him. They were given to him. He, in fact, became sin. That's what that verse says. He hath made him to be sin for us. He became sin. He was then the vessel into which God imputed all of the sins of all the elect. It is dishonoring to the person of Jesus Christ to say that he became one more sin than necessary to save his family. I'm telling you today that he became all the sin that was necessary to save all the elect and not one more. And when he died, what happened? Let me ask you this. If you have something that you hate, something that you dislike very much. You know how to get rid of it? How do you get rid of something that you dislike very much? You kill it, don't you? You destroy it. 
when you do that. It is gone, right? It's gone. For instance, if I had a, let's just let two letters symbolize things here. Let's say I detest with all my might A, the letter A. I just detest it. How am I going to go about getting rid of A? If I were to turn A into B, listen, I want your attention. Nobody else does, okay? If A, I dislike, and I turn it into B, and I kill B, what has happened to A? If I don't like A, I turn it into B, I kill B, what has happened to A? A is dead, right? All right. God hated sin. That's A. He turned it into His Son. That's B. He killed His Son. B. What has happened to A? Sin. It's dead. I'm telling you that in the cross of Christ is the greatest victory of all times, for it is the triumph over sin. God killed His Son after He made His Son sin for us. This is the doctrine of imputation. God imputed our sins to Christ. Okay. What about us? Say, so were we left as a blank slate? Oh, no. God's salvation is complete. It is thorough. For what happened then? What happened then? He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, inasmuch as our sin was transferred to the account of Christ, and he died there to pay for it, the righteousness which was treasured in Christ from even before the world began was imputed to us. We who are so unfit, we who are so unworthy, we who are depraved, we who are rotten to the core have been given the righteousness of the perfect Lamb of God. That's imputation. And that's uh, worthy of praise, wouldn't you say? He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious thought. Now when we see this, we begin to get a handle on the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ is so potent, so powerful, that everybody for whom it was shed is saved. There is nothing to stand between that individual and God. See that? If you see that, you must believe in particular redemption. You must. If you believe something else, you must conclude that some of the blood of Christ was wasted. Because it will land no one in heaven. I tell you today that every drop of the blood of Christ was shed specifically to save all the family of God. Remember John 6? I will raise him up again at the last day. I will lose nothing. None. Some would suggest that Jesus Christ is in heaven, folded hands, wringing his hands, wishing and hoping and pleading that sinners would accept him in order that they might be in his family. I declare unto you no such God today, but I declare unto you a victorious Lord who has saved to the uttermost. There is nothing that stands between his elect and himself. 
since he has died to save us from our sins. We're just about out of time. Let me give you one, one verse that somebody surely has thought of so far. I talked last Sunday about John 3.16. If you want to hear that again, you can get the tape. Let me mention 1 John 2. And then I want to wrap this up in a very practical way. 1 John chapter 2, we'll look at one objection to this doctrine. Probably the most often raised objection to this doctrine. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says this. He, that is Christ, is the propitiation. That word means satisfaction. He is the satisfaction for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now obviously if he is telling us there that Jesus Christ came to satisfy God's wrath on behalf of everybody in the whole world, then this doctrine of particular atonement has to go, right? I trust that I'm not too proud to discard that doctrine if I find it to be unbiblical. I hope that you are of that same mindset. I hope that all of us are always in that, that position to say, it doesn't matter how long I believed it, how long I found it to be so, and how many times I've heard somebody preach on it, it doesn't matter a bit. If it is not so... I don't want it. I don't want a part of it if it's not so. Okay? Let's look at 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Is he saying he's the propitiation for our sins as well as the sins of everybody? That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? <laughs> what kind of sense would it make for me to stand up here and say... <clears throat> I want you to know that Jesus Christ has satisfied God on your behalf, everybody here, as well as everybody, also everybody. If I make a statement that is all-inclusive, it can't be enlarged upon. Look at it again. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Point. If he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, why did he have to say he was also the propitiation for our sins? Get it? If he's the propitiation for the sins of everybody, why did he also have to explain that he's the propitiation for our sins? The word also literally makes no sense in that verse if he's talking about everybody in the world. Rather, I think it becomes very clear when we recognize that the Jewish people, probably John writing to Jewish people, he starts his book by saying we've handled the word of life. He says we've been around Jesus Christ. We were close to him. We've heard him speak. We've listened to his doctrine. We've had this truth from the beginning. He's probably talking to Jewish people. The Jewish people had an idea that salvation extended to whom? Only Jews, right? That was the idea the Jewish people had. They thought only Jewish people are saved. That's not true. Here, John comes along and says, wait a minute. He is not only the propitiation, the satisfaction for the sins of Jewish people. He is the satisfaction for the sins of Gentile peoples as well. His sacrifice extends beyond the borders of Jewry only and encompasses people out of every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every tribe under heaven. Okay? We can talk more about that when we have more time if you're interested. I believe the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus Christ died to save the elect and that he is utterly successful in that. 
I'd like to close by asking a question I often do, what does this mean to me right now? And I'd like to let the Bible answer that question by turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Listen closely to these verses, please. For unto, for even hereunto, he says, were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, this is your sacrifice, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, being dead to sins, listen to this, should live unto righteousness. There's the purpose of redemption. You who are a wandering sheep, I who have been a wandering sheep, spending more time in the brambles and briars by the side than out there in the middle of the pasture, have had our glorious Savior stand on our behalf, shed His blood to buy us back in order that what? We might live unto righteousness. That we might live righteous lives. I believe that everybody for whom Christ has died, everybody for whom Christ has died, will live a righteous life. Does that mean I believe in pure sanctification, complete holiness? Absolutely not. In this life, I don't think we'll ever reach the point where we are completely holy because we've got a flesh that's still got the curse of sin in it, unfortunately. Even Paul wrestled with that, right? What I do believe is that by the fruit of a tree, you will know the tree. If you are redeemed today, there will be evidence in your life. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, but fruit will be born. Little here, a little there, a lot here, a lot there. Along the line, fruit will be born to the effect that you will have the assurance in your heart that Jesus Christ has redeemed you from your sins. If you're worried today that you might be one of those people that wants to go to heaven real bad, and you want to serve God real badly, but you're afraid you're not among the particular. You're not among the elect. This verse lets us know that the individual who desires to walk righteously only does so because he has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so today, if you have a burden to follow Christ, that has been placed there in your heart by the sovereign God who says, I sent my son to die for you, that you might be one who would walk righteously. And one of the ways you can walk righteously is by obeying him in baptism. And I pray that the message of redemption might so stir our hearts and purge our consciences from dead works that we might serve the living God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, impress upon our hearts and minds the truth of thy redemption. Give us open minds and hearts to recognize the teaching of thy word. Even in areas, Lord, where it appears that there are contradictions in the Bible, help us to realize that contradiction is in us and that you have placed such things in the Bible to make us study, to make us dig. Give us, Lord, the spirit to do that. 
I pray today that you would touch everybody's heart here and that you would bless us that we might effectively follow Christ in righteousness. Since we have been redeemed to that very purpose and will ultimately spend eternity with thee in heaven, where all is righteous, help us, Lord, to take up our cross daily and follow thee. I pray, Lord, that if there are those who struggle with a desire to be baptized, that you would encourage their heart. And I pray that those of us who have taken that step might encourage others and that we might walk in the way you would have us to go. I pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.